think about bodily resurrection is how is this even possible? How could something that is corruptible, that's decaying, that will ultimately decay, right, decompose, how can that actually turn into something heavenly that's made for eternity, unending, incorruptible? How is that possible? And we won't get all the answers, but certainly we'll have a better understanding, hopefully, as we consider the, um, the analogy that Paul uses. So in verses 1 through 11, Paul reminded his readers that Christ died and that he rose from the dead. The reason we know he died is because he was buried. The reason that we know he rose from the dead is because he appeared to many people. And those are the two, um, those are two of the key foundational principles to uh, the Christian faith. And so Christ is alive. He was raised bodily. And the, this is important because if we deny Christ's bodily resurrection, then we've denied our bodily resurrection. And if we deny our bodily resurrection, then we've denied Christ. That's what verses 12 through 28 were about. It kind of reverses what we would think. We would think, well, if we denied Christ's resurrection, then we've denied our future resurrection. And that's true. But Paul actually says they're so inseparably linked that if we deny our bodily, future bodily resurrection, then we've actually denied Christ. Our faith is in vain. Our preach is in vain. We are of all men most to be pitied. And so these are so closely linked together that, in other words, we are united in Christ with his death, certainly, but also in his resurrection. So we can be sure that the bodily resurrection of each one of us will take place. We will be raised bodily. Therefore, we can be sure that Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ has been raised from the dead. Therefore, we can be confident that we will rise from the dead. There's this kind of cyclical, um, um, uh, almost synonymous parallelism that's going on here. But Paul's not done, because in verses 29 and following, Paul continues to give us confidence in our future bodily resurrection. And then, beginning in verse 35, he explains the nature of this resurrection. What is it like? And we'll, pick, we'll start here um, by understanding some of the nature, how this happens, and then we'll pick up on it next week, beginning in verse 50. So for tonight, let me read our text for us, and I'll ask you to follow along in your Bible as I read, beginning in verse 29. This is the Word of God. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. But someone will say, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? 
You fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For star differs from star and glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have been born, just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we also will bear the image of the heavenly. In this text, we see that believers must be confident in the reality of their future bodily resurrection, and they must be confident in the nature of their future bodily resurrection. Evan, paging Evan Manser. Before you um, get settled, can you advance the next slide for me, please? <coughs> Believers must be confident in the reality of their future bodily resurrection and the nature of it. So, in the first section here, verses 29 through 34, we have some more proofs that our bodily resurrection is guaranteed. And then he's going to explain it. He's going to show us the nature of it. Thank you. Let me see if I have control there. There you go. Thank you. That's perfect. So what Paul is saying is that in the second section, he's going to say when it comes to the how of our bodily resurrection, we should think of it like a seed. That the seed of my resurrected body is my current body. We'll talk about that. It's of the same kind but different glory. So let's look first at at some more of the reality of our future bodily resurrection, the confidence that we can have in the fact that we will be raised, verses 29-34. What Paul does here is he gives some more logical proofs for the bodily resurrection. Logical proofs for the bodily resurrection, verses 29-34. And here's the nature of his argument in each one of these uh, sections here. If the resurrection is true, then blank doesn't make sense. So he's trying to show them the foolishness of their arguments. They're arguing, you know, this this bodily resurrection cannot happen. Paul's saying, yes, it can, because we know it's going to happen, and here's why. If if it doesn't happen, then, or if it is actually true, then these other things that you're doing don't make sense. So the first one is the Corinthians' practice of baptism for the dead. So here's how it works. If the resurrection is true, the Corinthians' baptism for the dead doesn't make sense. Now, you probably read through that text 
a number of times and wondered what in the world is this. And based on the title of this, um, this point here, you can tell what I think it is, and I'll explain why I think this. I think this is the Corinthian practice of baptism for the dead. Now, some people argue differently. They, are, they argue that the Corinthians actually were doing a proper practice of regular water baptism. That is, that each of us, when we come to Christ, we are called to be baptized. We would agree with that. And that the nature of this baptism is that um, we are, in a sense, dead. Our, our decaying bodies are actually being buried in the water to symbolize something of greater significance, right? And so in that sense, the, the, the Christians have died to their former way of life. And in the sense, their, their, their death is seen in, in the fact that they are in these corruptible bodies. So what Paul is saying then is that, that they practice this water baptism. Their dying bodies are baptized by immersion. Some people would see the, the text as referring to that. So if that's the case, then his argument would be, if the resurrection is true, then why do we baptize people? If that were his argument, which I don't think it, it is his argument, if that were his argument, then why wouldn't he just come out and say that? Why call it baptism for the dead when he doesn't do it anywhere else in his writings? And that's why I think this second option is the correct one, which is that these Corinthian believers who were alive were getting baptized on behalf of their dead loved ones. This is a practice that, as far as I know, doesn't happen today. But it was um, kind of a way to put the, their dead believer in a place where they would be accepted by God. And the Corinthians were, were dying. For, so apparently you had some Christians who had died before getting baptized. You know, a thief on the cross type salvation or uh, a deathbed type salvation, right? And so their Corinthian loved ones were left behind to say, well, this person was saved, but they weren't baptized, and they need to be baptized um, because it's important about their future and, and their resurrection and, and so on. And so we'll get baptized on their behalf, a substitutionary baptism, effectively. So they kind of um, made up or bought into a practice that was being done in their day. And, and the reason I think that this is the case is because we don't have any... Um, proof, first of all, that, that Paul encourages this kind of thing. But secondly, um, notice how Paul describes it in verse 29. What will those do who are baptized for the dead? So the second part is I would say that Paul doesn't condone this. He says, what will you do? In other words, you, those of you who actually are practicing substitutionary baptism for the dead, what will you do? about this doctrine of the resurrection. So he's arguing from their foolishness effectively. We might look at this and condemn it and say, well, wait a second, wouldn't Paul just stand up and say, no, you cannot baptize for the dead. It doesn't do any good. But we have to be careful there because in chapter 8, verse 10, Paul simply acknowledges eating idols in a temple without condemning it. So just because he mentions something doesn't mean he condones it. That's the point. Right? He does condemn eating idols in a temple. Or not eating idols. <laughs> no one corrected me on that. Uh, eating meats uh, that are sacrificed to an idol in a temple, in a pagan temple. Um, Paul does condemn that later in chapter 13. So he did have a problem with that. But in chapter 8, he never even brought it up. 
So we might look at something like this and say, well, uh, you know, he, he doesn't condemn it, so it must not be talking about that. It must be talking about a good practice that they're doing. But we have to keep in mind that Paul doesn't always just flat out condemn things. Some, some things are pretty clearly uh, wrong, obviously wrong. And so I think that's the case here. It seems to me that only the Corinthians are doing this and that Paul is actually mocking them. He, he's mocking them in such a way by saying, listen, if there is no resurrection from the dead, why in the world are you baptizing people on behalf of, of the dead? as if that's going to affect anything in their future resurrection. All right, so that's the first one. Secondly, if the resurrection is true, then spiritual risk-taking doesn't make sense. Verses 30 to 32. If the resurrection is true, then spiritual risk-taking doesn't make sense. That is that we expose ourselves to danger. And... Is that possible as Christians that that because of our stand for Christ and our confidence in our future bodily resurrection that we actually live in such a way that puts our present body in danger? Look at verse 30. Paul says, Then why are we also in danger every hour? Right? If there is no resurrection, then why why do we put ourselves in danger? That doesn't make sense. Why would we want to harm something that, you know, if we only live once and there's nothing in the next life, then why put it in danger? Why not preserve everything that we can? Why not isolate ourselves and protect ourselves? The second type of spiritual risk-taking, when I say spiritual risk-taking, I'm saying risk-taking on behalf of Christ. So it would be spiritual in nature. The second type of spiritual risk-taking is in verse 31, in the first part of verse 32, my exposure to death. He says, I affirm, brethren, verse 31, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? So there, the wild beasts, we're not talking about literal animals, but probably opponents of his. And he's saying, why would I ever expose myself to these wild dogs of, of, uh, of false teachers who want my life? And, and was that the case with Paul? Did Paul ever have to run for his life because of his faith? Because of his confidence in the future resurrection? Read through Hebrews 11 and read about all the, the believers through history. Not all of them, but a selection of believers through history who have, who have had to risk their lives in many cases because of, um, because of their confidence in the future resurrection. Paul says, why would I do that? Why, why would we endanger our bodies? Why would we put ourselves in... in at death's doorway if the resurrection weren't true. Thirdly, if the resurrection is not true, I think I have that incorrect there at the top. I should say if the resurrection is not true. I've been saying it both ways. Apologize for that. Can I have a do-over? Okay the resurrection is not true, then our pursuit of holiness doesn't make sense. Okay, if the resurrection is not true, our pursuit of holiness doesn't make sense. In verse 32, he says, If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? And he goes on to say, If the dead are not raised, I'll eat and drink. 
and, and be merry effectively for tomorrow we die. I mean, what a waste Paul's persecution has been. If the dead are not raised, then, then we may as well just live however we please. And this goes along with the next one, which is if, our, if the resurrection is not true, our eternal mindset doesn't make sense. In other words, we are living as if there is no tomorrow. If we live in such a way that there is a tomorrow, we have an eternal mindset in view, then it doesn't make sense for us to deny ourselves of any worldly pleasure. And, and in that context, I think he's going back to Ecclesiastes, you know, just let's just eat and drink and be merry. For tomorrow we die. It's all going to end. So let's just live it up. Oh, sorry. The uh, comedy of errors tonight on my part. Sorry about that. Um, I don't have a remote down here, but you can just imagine what the screen would look like if it were all the way down and the colors were just perfectly dispersed on the screen. If the resurrection is not true, our eternal mindset doesn't make sense. We're living as if there is a tomorrow. But if there is no tomorrow then let's just do whatever we want today. You know, let's just eat and drink. And I think the context there is drink alcohol as much as we want and live up for the pleasures of the world because tomorrow we die. Right? I mean, think about this in terms of your boss, right? If your boss gives instructions, but there's no payday coming, is there really any incentive to obey your boss? Is there really incentive, any incentive to actually do anything? There's no payday coming? I mean, we can do whatever we want. But if the resurrection is true, then our eternal mindset does make sense. And then, fifthly, if the resurrection is not true, then their mature thinking doesn't make sense. Their mature thinking doesn't make sense. Verses 33 and 34. You can just go all the way down with this context thing. Notice verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. So apparently some, right, verse 29, those of you who baptized with that, those of you who are buying into this um, no resurrection model, um, uh, verse 12 actually shows us not the whole church. Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So that's, that's the issue at stake here. Some of them were being led to believe that this future resurrection was impossible. And Paul says in verse 33, don't be deceived when you hang around bad company who's trying to lead you into this idea of annihilationism that we just kind of die after this life is over, then you're going to be corrupted in your thinking. We use this mantra um, when we talk about making good friends you know, with our children, and rightfully so, bad company corrupts good morals. But here Paul's saying in the context of in how you understand the future resurrection. If, if they're telling you to deny the future resurrection, then you're, you're among bad company and don't let them corrupt you. Instead, you need to grow up spiritually, verse 34. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. And, and by the way, this is a sin, to believe that there is no resurrection. It's actually denying what is clearly stated in the Scriptures. This is a fundamental or first-rate doctrine that cannot be denied if someone's going to be a believer. 
that there is a future bodily resurrection because it's tied to, remember, Christ's resurrection. They needed to grow up. Instead, they were acting shamefully because they didn't understand the power of God. They didn't understand the ability of God to be able to take something that was dead and decayed and turn it into something that was beautiful and full of life. So first, Paul wants believers to be confident in the reality of their future bodily resurrection. But secondly, he also wants them <coughs> excuse me. He also wants them to be confident in the nature of their future bodily resurrection. The bodily resurrection of believers brings about a change in dimension. Somehow God takes what is earthy and turns it into something that's equipped for heaven, that's heavenly. Paul wants the believers to know how this could happen. Notice what he says here, verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? Okay, let's just, let's just, um, let's just humor you for a minute here, Paul, and say that the resurrection actually is possible. Well, I've got some serious issues with it, because how is this even possible? How could something that is dead and decayed, that's decomposed, how can life come from that? And notice the next question, verse 35. And with what kind of body do they come? Right? Apparently the false teachers had, had convinced some Corinthians that the bodily resurrection was impossible. I mean, after all, earthly bodies decompose. And so what kind of resurrection body is going to come of a decomposed body? I mean, how can you take a decomposed substance and make something that's beautiful? Isn't some kind of zombie going to come of this? Is that where we're going to be eternally. People that are kind of missing some flesh in places and just abhorrent to look at. Paul, Paul's response comes in verses 36 through 49. It comes first in the form of a strong rebuke, you fools. And then second in the form of an illustration. Let's see if we can see this in verses 36 through 41. Paul uses an illustration of a seed to show the nature, right? How can this happen? And what will our bodies be like? He says, you fools. You do this kind of thing every growing season, don't you? Or, or every sowing season. You take a seed that is dead or alive. It's dead. And you put it under the ground, and somehow out of that dead, decomposed seed, it brings life. Jesus said in John 12, 24, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, then it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. So in other words, the life can't come unless the death happens first, right? And you, you all should know this. You farm yourself. Dead seeds bring life. And what kind of life do they bring? Verse 37. Let me just read the end of verse 36 here. I just want to show you that that is actually a maxim, a, a fact. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. In verse 37. That which you sow, you do, not, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. You don't take the whole stalk of wheat or grain and put the whole stalk in the ground. You know, kind of just take your whole tomato plant and just lay the whole thing in the ground. 
You take that which has died, the seed. You put that in the ground. And then out of that comes this fruit or this crop that has the same identity, right? has the same kind of DNA or makeup as what was in the seed. This fruit that comes up, it has the same makeup as what was in the seed, but it's a different substance, isn't it? Right? We don't eat the seeds um, like we eat the fruit. In other words, it doesn't remain the same when it's buried into the ground, right? If you've seen kind of time-lapse videos of this, the outward husk kind of falls away and decomposes. It dissolves. And, and somehow, inside of that little seed, is there some kind of life germ that is there that, that, that starts to sprout and bring up life. It draws itself to the sun. It soaks up the, the, the moisture around it. Sprouts up from the ground and produces life. So with that imagery in mind, look at verse 38, because that is how our resurrection, not exactly how, but that's it's analogous, similar to what our resurrection bodies will be like. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. And then verse 39, all flesh is not the same flesh. But there's one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, birds, fish, heavenly, earthly. So it's not that every decomposed molecule is recovered from our old body, just like the seed. Not every part of the decomposed seed actually is part of the final product, right? And the same thing is true with our bodies. You know, we think about these people who are, you know, blown up or cremated or, you know, over time, eventually all of our bodies and our bones decompose completely. How in the world are those molecules, which are now actually, if you think about it, in the soil and being used for um, for other things down the road, it's not like you can just kind of pick them all out and put them all together and, wow, we have this great body that's being restored. Instead, those molecules are, are a kind of seed of our future resurrection body. So your future resurrection body will be similar to your current earthly body, but not the exact same, just like the seed and the fruit are different. There's a connection in identity, but a difference in substance. The point is, is that is that, that which you put in the ground does not look like anything that comes up from the ground, right? you just kind of put both of them on the table, take the full bore plant or tree and put that next to the seed. They don't look anything like, do they? But they are of the same identity. There is continuity between them. But there's also some discontinuity because there there is a difference in in um, in how they're going to be used. And why should this be so surprising? Verses 39 through 41. Why should this be so surprising? Because there's all kinds of different flesh. There are all kinds of different flesh. Right? You have um, some flesh of, of various kinds of animals. And they're similar but different. And why can't there be one kind of substance or flesh that's earthly and another kind that's heavenly? Paul's saying, does, not, does God not have the ability to do that this is our there are different kinds of flesh there are different kinds of bodies
bodies for us. There's an earthly body, one that's fit for the earth, and that's what he's going to say in the following verses, and the one that's fit for heaven. Each body, right, think about a fish compared to a land animal. Each body is fit for its environment, right? When the fish is out on the ground, it's not fit to be out in the open air. But when it's in the water, it's fit for that. And the same thing is true for a land animal, right? A land animal is not fit to be at the bottom of the ocean. It would die. And, and so we have this body that's going to be resurrected with similar identity, similar DNA kind of makeup, but it's going to be equipped, fit for our future environment, heavenly. Verses 42 through 49 um, fleshes this out a little bit. There's a contrast here in the first um, three verses. Verse 42, so also is the resurrection body. So he has been primarily talking about a, a seed, a plant life, and so on. Now he brings the analogy over to our resurrection body. And what is it? It's sown perishable, but it's raised imperishable. Verse 43, it's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised spiritual. And then in verse 45, uh, verse 46, excuse me. Nope. One more. 47, the first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. So here's, here's the basic contrast that Paul gives between our earthly bodies and our future resurrection bodies. First, verse 42, perishable, imperishable. Second, verse 43, dishonor, glory. Third, weakness, power. Fourth, natural, spiritual, and fifth, earthy, heavenly. And, and basically we have this first category, perishable, in dishonor, weakness, natural body, earthy, that all speaks of what? It all speaks of the temporality of it, the temporal nature of it, right? It's all passing away. It's perishable. It's dishonorable. It's weak. It's natural. It's earthy. Corrupted. That's the, the idea of perishable there. And then the second category is shows this incorruptibility, right? It is imperishable. It's made in honor. It's made in power, spiritual and heavenly. So our current bodies are dishonorable, susceptible to sin, powerless, natural, made for corruption. But when our bodies are raised, or I should say they're, they're made for corruption because of the fall, but when our bodies are raised from the dead, they will be glorious and incapable of decay. They will be powerful and spiritual. We will all have bodies that are fit toward eternity. There, there is no corruption or decay. There cannot be in the presence of God. Now, let me just uh, point out something to you here. Uh, in verse 44, sounds like a, a paradox. It's sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. What do we think of when we think of spiritual? We think of something that is like, for example, God is spirit. God, Father, have a body. Holy Spirit is spirit. Does the Holy Spirit have a body? No. So we think, okay, we can understand 
the natural body, right? Something that we can see and feel and touch. But but a spiritual body sound, sounds kind of paradoxical, right? Like it's some kind of spirit, but it's also body. Well, that's not what he's talking about. Most likely he's talking about uh, the fact that, that we will be perfectly in tune with our spirit. That we will be in perfectly in tune with the Holy Spirit. That we will have bodies that are fit for eternity. That's in the context what he's talking about, right? That we can come to glory fit for heaven, fit to live in the presence of God. Because no one can see God and live, and yet we will live in His presence. We will see Him face to face. How is that even possible? We can't in our current bodies because they're subject to decay because of sin. But because our future bodies will be recreated or created out of the same kind of stuff, they will come up like um, like a, a, a dead seed turns into a living plant. So our future bodies will be fit for the presence of God. Verse 45, our present bodies have the characteristics of Adam. Our future bodies will have the characteristics of the resurrected Christ. And then in verses 46 through 49, our future bodies will reach their full potential, right? Adam was made from the dust of the earth, and that tells us that that, there is some kind of temporality. There's some kind of temporalness with how Adam was made, right? Because after sin, we found out that he was made from the dust and to the dust that he will return. There is that temporal nature of it, but, but these bodies will not be made from the dust. Instead, it will be more like Jesus, who was uncreated. Somehow, God is going to give us a body that is incapable of decay. And since our resurrection bodies will be of the same kind as Christ's bodies, we will have the ability to reach our full potential. Because at that time, we'll be completely incorruptible, uncorrupted by sin. So, couple points of application. Number one, be confident in your future resurrection. Christ has been raised from the dead, and therefore you will be raised. The fact that you live for the next life, and the fact that you take risks as a Christian right now, and the fact that you pursue holiness, those are all proof that you will raise from the dead. And the reality of this is possible as seen in the illustration of the seed. The nature of This is explained in the illustration of the seed. The seed dies, it brings life. Our future bodies will have the same identity but different substance. So, be confident in your future resurrection. Christ has been raised. You live for another time and another place. And so, um, because you do, you, you show that you believe in the future resurrection. So, because of that, live in light of your future resurrection. Since the future resurrection of your body is real, then live in light of that. So that means it's good to take risks for Christ. We should follow Paul's example to endanger our bodies in some cases in order to make sure that the gospel goes to the people who need to hear it. So that the gospel goes to the people around us, even if they reject us. We should be willing to endanger our bodies in order to advance the work of Christ. Then, 
we should pursue holiness. If we live in light of the future resurrection, then we should pursue holiness. We should have an eternal mindset. We should think about the fact that that there's, in some sense, our current bodies will, our, our future bodies will rec- res- represent or or um, will identify in some way with our present bodies. So we should we should have an eternal mindset. We should live for the future. We should be mature in our thinking. We should meditate on the reality of the future bodily resurrection. Negatively, that means that we cannot just live as if there is no tomorrow. We can't live like the world, as if our choices don't matter. You know what? Just another day. God hasn't returned. God hasn't sent Christ back. God hasn't brought judgment on the world. God hasn't judged me for my sin that I'm enjoying. So I can continue to live however I want. No, because we believe that Christ has died and has been raised and that we will be raised. And we live soberly. We live as if there is a tomorrow and if, as if tomorrow matters. And positively, it means that we should give our energy for the sake of Christ. And we should recognize the, the, um, the dissonant sound um, that this world makes in relationship to this grand chorus, this grand uh, symphony, that, uh, the, the, this grand symphonic movement that God has made. This, this beautifully composed piece where all things will be under subjection to him and we and our bodies are still being pulled away from him by the cares of this world and by the sins that we enjoy. And that should be a dissonant sound in our ears. But we should long to shed these bodies and minds of sin. We, I want to uh, be clear about that because we, we don't want to think that only the body is sinful. right? Jesus has a body. And so just to have a body does not mean that we're sinful. Adam and Eve had a body. And they were not guaranteed to sin in a sense, or, or forced to sin because they had a body. Um, so there is this Platonic dualism, maybe it's a philosophical term, but this Platonic dualism that the spirit is good and the body is evil. So we can, th- there's this crazy pagan idea that we can kind of do whatever we want in the body as long as we have good motives and we're, you know, being spiritual and having this relationship with God. We can do whatever we want to our bodies. We can engage in any kind of sins that we want because the body's going to be corrupted and passed away. But, but no, the body's going to be restored. Right, it's it's kind of the the picture, um, not to take the analogy too far, but of the seed. Right, if we keep destroying the seed, then at some point the seed's not going to have the life germ that it needs to bring about the, the fruit. We show ourselves not to be um, one of the seeds that God is is going to to bring back life from. So we we but we should have this mindset that that you know what I have this pull in my natural state. With this body and this mind that is drawn towards sin, it doesn't fit with what it's supposed to be. And so I long to be in my future resurrected body. And I think just the nature of sickness and illness and and just watching other people die around us, we have that kind of longing anyway. Right? That this body is corruptible. It's not made to live forever. Because of our sin, we have brought in this decay that we now have. But there's coming a day when we will enjoy our body for what it is and 
and be able to reach our full potential in the glory of God and honoring him as it was made to do. So long for your groups of bodies to be raised. Any uh, questions or comments?